0: Hello, and welcome to the seventh part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Today we will continue our survey of the injustice and violence of disease containment as a public health strategy. We ended yesterday with a discussion of how non-pharmaceutical interventions for disease control create a hostile and stigmatizing culture. We also discussed how they became a weapon of state abuse. In India, the cultivation of fear and suspicion in the name of disease containment had an almost instant fallout on its beleaguered Muslim community. First, sensing that they would be blamed for any COVID-19 outbreak in India, they voluntarily broke up a nationwide sit-in, the Shaheen Bagh protest that had been going on for three months against a discriminatory citizenship law passed by the government at the centre. Then, four days into lockdown, and despite all their efforts to prove themselves as good citizens by dispersing their hard-fought movement, Muslims found themselves being blamed nevertheless for COVID-19 based on a few cases that were traced to a gathering of an obscure orthodox Muslim group called the Tablighi Jamaat. For India, this was a small gathering of some 1,500 people. Big Hindu temples were attracting many more people all over the country, more by the tens of thousands at the same time as the Tablighi Jamaat gathering. But for four weeks, Covid-19 was treated as though it were an entirely Muslim problem to a stream of abuse and taunts from anti-Muslim sections of the Indian media and public. Even the liberal media started with a tuck-tucking tone about the Jama'at. After all, they had been zealously participating in the social distancing and community hygiene drive against Covid-19, seeing themselves as they do as enlightened, public health-conscious, globally aware Liberals. They had followed people on camera on their morning walks and while buying vegetables from street hawkers, berating them for violating social distancing. So running as they were, full tilt on the momentum of hysteria over Covid-19, it took a few days of Muslim bashing from the right-wing media for the liberal media to realise on which side it had landed, in supporting social distancing. Then they changed tack, but it was too late. A vicious atmosphere had been created. Pretty soon we had reports from all over the country of Muslim men being set upon and thrashed by corona vigilantes, of posters going up in colonies telling Muslims to keep out and all the ugliness of communal hatred in India that is always waiting in the corner to show itself. Members of the Tablighi Jamaat had been staying in a six-storey building called uh, the Markas in New Delhi's Nizamuddin Basti. The Nizamuddin Markas functions as an institutional centre and board and lodge facility for Jamaat members visiting from outside Delhi. They come from India and all over the world. The Markers accommodate several thousand people for night stay on every, any given day. The ultra-Orthodox Tablighi Jamaat is a fringe group, their strict rules of conduct keep their members wrapped up in prayer and a generally monastic life. As a result, members keep to themselves and very few cases spread out into Delhi from the Markars Even in the cramped ghetto of Nizamuddin Basti, where the lanes are so narrow that you cannot even stretch your arms out fully from side to side as you walk through them. After the Tablighi Jamaat cases were detected, Nizamuddin Basti was sealed off for 70 days. Thousands of people were quarantined and tested. But to the best of my knowledge, no cases were found there apart from those in the Markas. The Tablighi Jamaat story very clearly demonstrates the ways in which containment strategies of sealing of areas, contact tracing and quarantining can be used by governments to target and victimise people. The government had actually begun routine uh, contact tracing of Tablighi Jamaat members in mid-March before the lockdown. What appears to have happened was that one person who had visited the Marqas from outside Delhi early in March had fallen ill and succumbed to Covid-19 on returning home. In the third week of March, on the eve of India's lockdown, the central government had written to state governments to contact Trace the Biki Jamaat members. All this was going on quietly in the background while the Indian public was riveted by the migrant labour crisis which had hit the news with a bang within days of the lockdown. For 48 hours, the television and papers went cover to cover excoriating the government for having overlooked the devastating effect on India's poor of the imposition of its shock lockdown. The government had clearly been utterly unheeding of Indian realities in making its shock announcement of lockdown seeking, as it seems, only the approval of the World Health Organization, which, even while COVID-19 was showing itself to be the disease of the richest cities of Europe and the US, Paris, Milan, London, New York, was issuing press briefings all through late March, invoking the world's poor and densely populated countries as determining the cause of this disease. Now the Indian government, after getting a star and smiley face from the WHO for locking down, suddenly found itself being stood in the corner by the Indian public that it had forgotten about. This is when the Tablighi Jamaat story suddenly entered the news. A slick move indeed, as overnight the main news story changed from the migrant labour crisis to Muslim super spreaders. While Donald Trump was tweeting about the Wuhan virus, hashtags like Corona Jihad were trending in India. The Tablighi Jamaat affair is only one of many examples of discrimination from around the world against minorities in the toxic social distancing atmosphere that was encouraged in response to COVID-19. In South Korea, an early COVID-19 outbreak was traced to a small Christian sect called Shincheonji. Even though South Korea made not locking down a matter of pride in their Covid-19 response, the church's members were blamed for gathering despite the Covid threat and as is typical in all religious targeting for the epidemic, portrayed as holding themselves above the risk of infection because of their blind faith in God. This was the story. But a white paper on this episode by a number of European human rights groups including a body called Human Rights Without Frontiers and some international groups speaking for Christian minorities worldwide painted a very different picture. The Shincheonji sect was deeply unpopular in South Korea and had a history of discrimination there. The woman from this church who was said to have had infected others had been hospitalized in February after being involved in a minor car accident. She had been diagnosed with a cold and sent home. Thereafter, she went about her normal life, including attending the Shincheonji gatherings. She was diagnosed with COVID-19 only several days later when her condition worsened and she had had to go to hospital again. The woman said that she had not refused to be tested for COVID-19 and that the doctors who were making these claims uh, were doing so to cover their own mistake in missing her infection previously. This white paper conceded that some people had tried to hide their association with Shin when the contact tracing exercise was undertaken but this was because the church was so unpopular that they feared repercussions including the loss of their jobs if their association with this church was discovered. So once again you have the same pattern of stigma, finger pointing and fear generated by containment measures. The white paper on on the Xinjiangji episode, which is on my blog, linked there, also gives some interesting information on how religious minorities have historically been targeted during epidemics. Even during Covid times, the Wall Street Journal ran a story luridly titled, Coronavirus is spreading at religious gatherings, ricocheting across nations. Actually, what is abundantly clear is that it was international travel and trade by the sort of reader who takes the Wall Street Journal that was making COVID-19 ricochet across nations. If you follow countries as they trace back their outbreaks, you will see that COVID-19 spread in diverse settings and from diverse vectors of transmission all at once. Travel, sports events like a big football match in Italy against a Spanish team, festive family reunions like in China over their annual spring festival, social events at exclusive clubs such as in Rio de Janeiro and bars in Japan and South Korea, big street celebrations like Mardi Gras in Louisiana and beer festivals in Germany, choir groups uh, such as in Washington state, from doctors and in hospitals and communal settings like old age homes, and even International Women's Day parade, uh, the International Women's Day parade that was held in the, that were held in early March in Paris and Madrid. At the start of an outbreak, no one knows where the disease is going to come from. It takes weeks of painstaking contact, uh, contact tracing to build a picture of uh, the transmission route of the disease or an infection. This is why the identification of super spreaders has to be understood with a little less of the gotcha attitude. You can have no super spreaders, no patient zero and still have a massive outbreak. Religious gatherings are just easier to identify right up front. So you can have no super spreaders, no patient zero and still have a a massive outbreak as happened in Paris and New York or as in South Africa, you can find patient zero early on or as in New Delhi, you can find and isolate so-called super spreaders like uh, the Tablighi Jamaat members and still have a massive outbreak months later. In late June, the super rich New Delhi colony of Jorbagh was sealed after a sudden outbreak of COVID-19. There is no question of any Jamaati ever having met a single person from there. There are no clear figures on how many cases were eventually traced back to the Tablighi Jamaat. The Indian Health Ministry claimed in mid-April that over 4000 cases were linked to the event. But while the controversy was raging, The central government had taken over, uh, took over publication of Covid data from the Autonomous Indian Council of Medical Research. There are no details on how cases were attributed to the Tablighi Jamaat, whether they were linked to any Jamaat event in Nizamuddin Marqas or whether they were just members who are all over India and the world or whether uh, they were merely people who had stayed or passed through the Marqas building. Uh, or whether the figure quoted refers to contacts, that is, uh, suspects, COVID suspects, or confirmed cases, and so on. Even assuming the government's figure of 4,000 attributed to the Tablighi Jamaat are fair and correct, today, just three months on, with India at over 10 lakh cases and more than 26,000 deaths, the Jamaat event is so small as to be invisible in the full picture of India's COVID outbreak. Superspreaders are not those who drive disease outbreak, they are simply those who are most easily identified as spreaders by the contract tracer. We should stop using this stigmatizing expression. This has already been recommended by UNAIDS, which based on its experience with AIDS, published a paper early in the COVID-19 pandemic, warning that expressions like super spreader are stigmatizing and should not be used. The xenophobia, racism and discrimination sparked by COVID-19 is so widespread. This is just such a shame on all of us who are saying that we are acting scientifically and rationally. It is so widespread that Wikipedia has taken out a page dedicated to such incidents under the title List of Incidents of Xenophobia and Racism Related to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Some countries like Bangladesh and many in Africa, as I mentioned yesterday, went to the extremes of deploying their armies to enforce disease containment measures. In Bangladesh, the army chief claimed that his troops patrolling the streets made the populace mentally relieved and had highly energized them. Human Rights Watch claimed that civilians, including academics and opposition party workers in Bangladesh had been arrested for posting social uh, social media messages on COVID-19 that the government called rumours and propaganda. In Nigeria, by the middle of April, 18 people had been killed by armed forces and police in the enforcement of lockdown, more than the total number of people dead from covid-19 in nigeria by that time in kenya a 13 year old boy a 13 year old boy was killed by a bullet fired in the air by the police to impose covid curfew i have already described the killing of people in the poor black neighborhoods of south africa by the army and police while enforcing lockdown that's in my yesterday's lecture and i urge you to listen to it There were three deaths in South Africa in the first three days of lockdown from lockdown enforcement. There were three uh, and this number grew to eight in the following week. And the biggest irony of all this is the way in which the Western press began in January and February with criticism of China for its harsh measures against COVID-19 and then proceeded to insist on them itself. The trail of death by lockdown was not limited to shootings by security forces in Africa. In India, the government responded to the news of migrant workers streaming out on the highway by putting the police there to stop them and send them back to the cities, (coughs) after a good beating of course. So the migrant workers began to take off highway routes to get out of the cities. The trains had been stopped for lockdown, but the tracks provided a clear open route back home. With the authorities focused on the highways, there was a good chance of making it home without being caught. It worked. No one knew this was going on until one early morning, in the first week of May, when a group of migrant workers who had camped along the tracks for the night were run over by a goods train. 16 of the group were cut to shreds by the train. Since passenger trains had been stopped by lockdown, some goods trains were being run at double the usual speed on passenger routes, but the public hadn't known about this. By the time of writing this paper, road accidents, heat stroke, exhaustion and hunger had taken hundreds of lives among the migrant workers and their children and babies on the journey home. Hundreds, that is, were identified. We will never really know the full extent of the numbers who fell victim to this journey. They were informal, undocumented workers, making an informal, undocumented journey, forced to run from hunger while hiding from the authorities who were flattening the curve and being responsible public health administrators according to the expert advice of the World Health Organization and such eminences as Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. Horton wanted a 10-week lockdown for India. The adoption of containment measures is phrased by epidemiologists as a false choice between saving lives and saving the economy. But governments have finally woken up to what was obvious all along, which is that the economy and health are inextricably tied up with each other. Lockdown was affecting health too and killing people. For the WHO to have advocated a strategy that imperiled the lives of so many and put so many more through hunger and deprivation is all the more outrageous when you consider that death from accidents, what the WHO calls unintentional injuries, and malnourishment are actually declared as heads of disease in its global global burden of disease profile. By the WHO's own logic, therefore, no excuses are allowed for anything, not even fate, when assessing the health of a people. This is the only logic for the WHO to have included things like death by unintentional injuries in its Global Burden of Disease listings. And by including malnourishment in this Global of Disease profile, it is the WHO that tells us that there is no choice between the economy and lives. So how could the WHO have advocated and supported disease containment measures when they put people in the way of the very deprivations and accidental deaths that the WHO itself says have to be eliminated eliminated from life. What has the WHO gained other than its own aggrandizement by making a global project of these universalist and totalizing claims about health, disease and death? To really place the COVID Saga in context, we have to get a full understanding of how the WHO and public health thinking in general have cultivated a global culture of health extremism without, as it turns out, actually believing in it itself. This was how it went. Dealing with sickness and death was not enough to contain the big, bleeding hearts of the World Health Organization and the public health field. So they made longevity into an index of national health. Now societies were declared to be callous and irresponsible if they did not manage to make their people survive till past 80. Because endless lonely years in an old age home is obviously the end that everyone desires and deserves. There are no marks here for poorer countries having, as the COVID Experts Group noted, much wider social contact and integration of the elderly than in richer countries. And even this was not enough to satisfy the all-encompassing infinite concern of the public health policy field. They evolved the concept of the DALY, Disability Adjusted Life Years, Life was to be measured not in years, but in time lived, without disease or pain of any kind. In this way, health became no mere matter of disease and injury, but a bizarre ideal where there would be no sickness or accident, and it seems even death would be indefinitely postponed, if not eliminated altogether. I alternate between finding this comical and deeply unsettling. Who are these weirdos at the World Health Organization and in Public Health to whom we have outsourced thinking about so important and personal a matter as our health and that of our children? Who are these people? Even though the WHO led with a containment approach for COVID-19, there was already a lot of evidence that this was not working very well from the Ebola epidemics of West Africa. Contact tracing made people feel victimised for falling ill and resentful of health officials. West African governments have been accused of using Ebola and now COVID-19 as an excuse to postpone elections and target the opposition. A 1995 report from the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then known as Zaire, describes people running away from quarantine with the help uh, of the community and of villagers resisting Red, Cro- uh, Red Cross trucks that came to take the sick away for treatment. 25 years sorry, twenty-five years and 4 outbreaks later, the same scenes are described by Human Rights Watch in the 2020 Ebola-gripped Democratic Republic of Congo, resentment has split into hatred with cases of health workers being murdered by local militias. The closure of international borders between Ebola-affected West African nations in their 2014 outbreak is said to have grossly interfered with the dense historical, social, filial, and economic links between these nations, making breaches by uh, the public of border restrictions inevitable and even necessary. In this way, all the measures of disease containment which the World Health Organization believes are routine and beneficial cause immense suffering to the people and are deeply resented by them. They also appear to have little effect. There have been 5 Ebola outbreaks in West Africa since 1976. Each outbreak reads like a repeat of the previous one, with the disease inexorably raging through small clusters in villages and cities, and then abruptly stopping, regardless of quarantine measures, contact tracing, locking borders, PPE kit supplies and so on. Hospitals have been the origin of Ebola outbreaks on successive occasions despite all the forwarding and preparedness about this. What more proof do we need that containment does not work for a sufficiently contagious virus? Each Ebola outbreak has been bigger and lasted longer than the last one. And yet the WHO has applied the same containment approach each time without questioning whether it may be ineffective or worse, contributing to the successive rise in epidemic size. The army is routinely called out in West Africa to enforce containment. In 2014, Sierra Leone passed a law making it a crime punishable with two years imprisonment to shelter Ebola patients. In this manner, since the 1970s, when the WHO first instituted containment measures as an Ebola response, more and more force has been used in West Africa to make people adhere to them. This is at least an indication that they are not working. But no one asks why people resist containment measures if it is so clear that they are working for them. Instead of introspecting, The WHO makes a big song and dance about communicating the importance of measures to people. Maybe the WHO should start communicating by listening to the people it is supposed to be saving. The WHO's single-minded focus on disease containment as a public health strategy misses the fact that disease sits inside people. The blindness of the WHO and the public health field in general to the obvious failures of non-pharmaceutical measures in West Africa speaks to the to the extent to which the dogma of disease containment has taken hold of them. Their war on disease becomes a war on people. The way in which the WHO and public health policy have extended their reach into the depths of people's lives by using stretched and abstract concepts of health, disease and death while winking at the real ill health, disease and death caused by containment measures should be a standing lesson to the whole world of the insensitivity and the arrogance of public health thinking. While migrant workers in India were dying, their young wives becoming widows, their children orphaned, their ageing parents losing their only support in life. This is what Mike Ryan, Executive Director of Health Emergencies at the WHO, he sits right next to Tedros Adhanom at all the press briefings. This is what he had to say about India's lockdown in late March. Society-wide measures are difficult, They are not easy and they are hurting people, but the alternative is even worse. Unfortunately, in some situations right now, they are the only measures that governments can actually take to slow down this virus. And that's unfortunate. All this is unfortunate. But that is the reality and we need to continually explain the reasons for this to our communities. While insisting on a containment approach on Covid on March the 9th at an international press briefing, Mike Ryan sanctimoniously lectured the world about how while in epidemiology we talk about the n, the size of the population we are dealing with, well for me as a medical professional n equals 1. He says every person matters. What happened to these lofty sentiments when Mike Ryan endorsed India's lockdown three weeks later despite what it was doing to its people. What fraction of N equals to one were the dead migrant labourers, their women giving birth on the highway, their babies starving to death on the way home and their orphaned children? Two months later in May, When stories of the plight of the poor in India under lockdown finally registered with the WHO, they tried to backtrack from it. They trotted out their chief scientist Saumya Swaminathan, who luckily for them happened to be an Indian. In a television interview in early May, Saumya Swaminathan said, cool as a cucumber, that the WHO had never recommended lockdown. Given the things that the WHO was saying in March about India, which I have just quoted, this is stretching the truth as far as a smooth-tongued WHO bureaucrat can make it go. From the start, the WHO has insisted on a containment strategy for COVID-19. It has repeatedly said that mitigation will not do Mitigation being measures to contain the virus within cluster outbreaks. The Director General of the WHO Tedros Adhanam repeatedly insisted that there must be an all of society and all of government approach. His words repeated over and over again. An all of society and all of government approach built around a comprehensive strategy to prevent infections. He said that he wanted to have an approach that mobilized the whole of society and made the response everybody's responsibility. Maria Van Kerkhove, the WHO's COVID-19 technical lead, said that what was required was repurposing your government to tackle this one virus. The WHO got what it asked for. I first came across this phrase, all of government, all of society response in the WHO-China Joint Mission report on COVID-19. I rolled my eyes at this as something the Chinese must have put in. Then I read Tedros Adhanam repeatedly used this ominously great dictator-like expression at his COVID-19 World Press Briefings, where it was faithfully echoed by his officials Mike Ryan and Maria Van Kerkhove. Let us pause for a moment and ask ourselves, What does an all-of-government, all-of-society response mean? All the people who bore the brunt of COVID-19 discrimination, racism, xenophobia and bigotry all around the world could tell us a lot about this. Tedros Adhanam should ask the Tablighi Jamaat members and their families how they felt about all of Indian society hunting them down with all of the Indian government for COVID containment. Maria Van Kerkhove should ask Indian migrant workers how they feel about the entire government repurposing to tackle this one virus. And when the dead workers' orphans grow up, Mike Ryan should ask them how they feel about their parents who were flattened by trucks and trains as they were forced to walk home from lockdown-induced famine lockdown induced famine in the cities where everyone was following his global directives to flatten the curve. In a way, Somya Swaminathan was correct. The WHO did not specifically recommend lockdown. Even the Chinese don't mention this word anywhere in their document in the WHO China Joint Mission report. Going by this report, Even social distancing appears to have been marginal to the Chinese strategy on COVID-19. The main intervention of the Chinese for disease containment was to effectively imprison all COVID-19 suspects in hospital by hunting the sick down in their homes, going door to door through their Communist Party carders and by sniffing out COVID suspects using GPS tracking and dragging them all to compulsory hospital confinement. This was what the all-of-society, all-of-government approach that Tedris Adhanam so fulsomely praised in his January briefings was all about. This is not what we can or should have. Where in any open and democratic society is the uniformity, the obedience and the single-mindedness that is implied in the phrase all-of-society all of government. In truth, it doesn't exist anywhere except where it is rammed down the throats of the people by totalitarian and abusive regimes. As an African, Adhanam should feel ashamed for what he has brought upon his compatriots with Covid-19 containment. He should have known that some African governments would be trigger-happy with calling out their armies to enforce containment and that in places like South Africa, poor blacks would be at risk of being shot at. As an Indian, Soumya Nathan should likewise be ashamed of what the WHO has brought upon India. She should have anticipated the communal forces that would be unleashed, the stigma that would follow all the social distancing propaganda and the hunger and deprivation that would follow lockdown. If public health officials don't know their people, then what good are they? Why do we have a concept of public health if it does not consider the people, their culture, their weaknesses and strengths? If the WHO feels that taking these factors into consideration is political, then it should stay its hands and not recommend any measures at all, because it is always political. Even while the public was being hustled into accepting lockdown and containment measures, some experts like UNAIDS tried to warn the world of exactly these things. In a paper published on March the 20th called COVID rights called Rights in the Time of COVID-19, UNAIDS starts by picking up on Adhanam's repeated exhortation for countries to respond to the COVID nineteen pandemic with containment as the central pillar Adhanam's phrase UNAIDS says countries are being requested to take a comprehensive approach with containment as the central pillar however as in all acute epidemics especially where causal person where casual person to person transmission occurs there is a need to ensure that the response is grounded firmly in human rights drawing from its own and incidentally also the WHO's uh, WHO's experience of fighting AIDS, UNAIDS then sets out step by step the inherent danger, injustice and futility of this approach, predicting with devastating accuracy the wrongs of each type, petty and profound, that came to pass under the reign of WHO prescribed COVID-19 containment measures. They say, In times of fear and panic, some countries may resort to politically-driven, restrictive, stigmatising and punitive measures. These may include compulsory blanket travel restrictions, quarantining large groups of people, combining people who have and people who don't have the virus, using stigmatising language such as super-spreaders or criminalising people who may have breached restrictions or transmitted the virus to others. From the HIV epidemic, they say, we have learned that restrictive stigmatizing and punitive measures can lead to significant human rights abuses with disproportionate effects on already vulnerable communities. Governments need to work to prevent the creation of stigmatizing views or attitudes. UNAIDS' experience is that such stigma only serves to send people and communities underground and ultimately threatens the success of any response. Words matter, they say. The way governments, communities and the media speak about an epidemic, its modes of transmission and people who have the virus can all shape the way people and communities are perceived and treated. Avoiding phrases such as super-spreader can make a difference as to whether people feel empowered and willing to be tested and self-isolate or to provide help to others in need. It was not just UNAIDS that had the knowledge and experience that showed containment measures to be unjust, discriminatory and stigmatising. The issues raised by UNAIDS are anticipated in a document prepared in 2007 by the WHO called Ethical Considerations in Developing a Public Health Response to Pandemic Influenza. About public health measures such as isolation, quarantine, social distancing and border control, this document says policymakers should should pay specific attention to groups that are the most vulnerable to discrimination, stigmatisation or isolation, including racial and ethnic minorities, elderly people, prisoners, disabled persons, migrants and the homeless. Plans related to isolation of symptomatic individuals and quarantine of their contacts should be voluntary to the greatest extent possible another world health organization publication from 2016 guidance for managing ethical issues in infectious disease outbreaks reiterates the immediate risk of discrimination and the heightening of prejudices in an infectious disease outbreak it says members of socially disadvantaged groups often face considerable stigma and discrimination which can be exacerbated in public health emergencies characterised by fear and distrust. Those responsible for infectious disease outbreak response should ensure that all individuals are treated fairly and equitably. They should also take measures to prevent stigmatisation and social violence. Infectious disease outbreaks can exacerbate social unrest and induce violent behaviour especially against vulnerable groups such as minority populations. Officials involved in outbreak planning and response efforts should be prepared for the possibility that specific populations may be targeted as being the cause of the outbreak or, prov- or provoking transmission. Strategies should be proactively designed to protect such groups from a heightened risk of violence. If all this work, some of it by the WHO itself, had been given its due, lockdown and containment would not have been so severe, brutal or overemphasized as it was by the current leadership at the WHO. And while the WHO can't be blamed uh, for the extent to which uh, governments locally took uh, their containment drives, the fact of the matter is that if civil society had to create an environment where there would be vigilance and scrutiny and warning about all of this but they were the ones who were first off the bat supporting all of these measures supporting all of these measures they they, they used words like super spreader you know there there was absolutely no holding back there was uh, no attempt uh, to look at the all of this it's not even history it's stuff that's uh, come out two and three years ago this is inexcusable and we must learn the lesson the reason why you know I have uh, taken so much of your time to go through to iterate you know all these events in different countries is so that you know if we must remember there will be more disease and in fact you know covid itself there, there will be more more, more outbreaks. We, we, we cannot allow ourselves to respond in that way we can't we can't give this free reign to our governments. If all of this work had been given its due there might even have been a chance that we would have decided not to go for lockdown and do what we are now doing which is to keep the economy and social life going while doing cluster containment where cases break out but in a humane way recognizing the invasion of rights, the possibilities of government overreach, I should say the, the certainty and the inevitability of government overreach. I think that you know something that public health experts and policy makers and all need to understand is that uh, you know the, the entire the, the principles of constitutional law, ideas of human rights, the whole body of work on administrative uh, law which deals with uh, public agencies and state authorities but this didn't develop because there is a possibility that governments might uh, um, behave in the wrong way might might overreach might be incompetent might be corrupt it's all of this evolved on the premise on the understanding on the assumption that all of this would happen that's why you have ideas of checks and balances I mean all of this is so basic uh, it's almost right but you know I think that we've just forgotten it these are very alive um, you know dangers and imperatives if we want to remain a free and fair society and it's never a guarantee because you of course we always do it wrong and fall short but we have even given up the ideal i mean what is so heartbreaking about all of this is that the people who support all these heavy state measures they are the only people that we have who can speak Uh, For the state to uh, to stay in check. If you guys, if you guys are on the other side, there's no one left to speak out. So, we with these containment measures, we have to recognize them for being an invasion of rights, and we have to recognize the possibilities of government overreach. And they they have to have built-in. We have to give people recourse against this. We have to recognise that containment measures are inherently unjust and rather than demanding adherence to them as a matter of social responsibility, we should see them for the imposition that they are, applying them in as limited a manner as possible and with procedures that give full scope for individuals to challenge them. This concludes uh, part 7 of this lecture series. Uh, Thank you for your attention. Today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog covidlectures.blogspot.com where the full paper and parts 1 to 6 of my earlier lectures have already been published along with links to the YouTube videos and podcasts for this series. And um, I'm going to be uh, taking a break for the next two days uh, with these lectures. Uh, We'll meet again same time uh, on Wednesday the 22nd. 7 p.m. India time, 2.30 p.m. London time and 9.30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live for another round of the rolling COVID lecture series Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.